And now Solomon's ready to bring us into the, into the gate. We've landed the plane, we've been taxiing for a while, and now we're, we're about to, to pull up to, uh, well, E13 and 14, if you will. And what a ride it, it, it's been. And if you don't remember, uh, Ecclesiastes, the way you figure out the purpose of, of a writing, the purpose of an author, is you look in two places. You're, I said this to you back in the introduction many, many months ago. You look at the preface and in the conclusion. Or you look at the introduction and in the end. It, you read the, the introduction to a book and... And sometimes, if you want to cheat, you go to the very end of the book and you read it. Or, if you want to find a summary of that, you read the dust jacket on the back. And the dust jacket typically has the, the, the thesis or the, the introduction and then also the conclusion, kind of a summary, what you're going to get in, in a book. Well, if you don't have those, you, you read the introduction and you read the conclusion. And we're very familiar with Solomon's introduction, aren't we? we he's repeated it over and over. Vanity of vanities, all is, is vanity. He repeats it for emphasis. This is his thesis about life outside the garden. A Genesis 3 world is futile and and frustrating. And Solomon explores every area of human life. Wherever he looks, he finds the curse. That's his point. He finds futility. He finds frustration without God. He said it's like trying to chase the wind or plow water if, you, if it was even possible to do that. It just fills back in whenever the plow goes, goes through it. And so for 12 chapters, Solomon takes you down every avenue that proposes to bring satisfaction and shows you that it is a dead-end street. And in a book written 3,000 years ago, you find the exact same questions that people are asking today about the meaning of life. And even more importantly, you, you have a book that has the answer to all of those questions. Ecclesiastes allows you to see the world that you live in rightly. It, it's unvarnished. It's uncomfortable many times, but, but it's true. And you have, have agreed with it as you've read it. You felt what, what Solomon wanted you to feel, the futility of work, that you work and, and you work and you have little to show for it. The injustice of wicked people in power, you felt that in chapter 4. The, the, the dissatisfaction, the foolish pleasure, you, you, you grab a hold of something that you think is going to, to bring you satisfaction and it's only temporary and then poof, it, it vanishes away like the, like the mist off of, a, uh, of the morning. The inequity of sickness and death, it comes to the just as well as the unjust. Righteous people get cancer. Um, uh, believers' children die in car accidents just like, just like unbelievers. You felt that in the book, the, the feeling that life is too short and it's too long at the, at the same time. It flies by and then it also drags, drags on. I mean, it's like Solomon has been reading the headlines of, of the news today. And when you read Ecclesiastes, it's also like Solomon's living in your head. Because it's God pulling the curtain back on your own heart and also on the fall. And you say that that's kind of depressing. And there's a part of Ecclesiastes that is depressing. And you'd be right. The book would be depressing if it was not for the verses in front of us today. Because the 12 chapters are not the, the full meaning of the book. They're the evidence. And now we come to the conclusion. There are two places that, 
we have to look to find an author's meaning. And we haven't looked at the end yet. We saw the introduction, vanity of vanities. And now, in verses 13, Solomon draws the conclusion. He, he summarizes his findings. He ends his research in verse 8 of chapter 12. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's like Solomon is saying, I set out to prove that life apart from God is, is futile and frustrating. And after doing that for 12 chapters over and over, nothing has changed. It, it's still vain. It's still empty without God. But that's not the end of the journey. Solomon has been headed toward the destination of verses 13 and 14 from the very first verse. He's always known where he's been going. You might have thought he was lost, but he wasn't. It was to lead us here. You see, you and I would have not received Solomon's message that he's going to give us in these two verses all the way back in in verse 1 of of chapter 1. If Solomon would have said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and then given you the conclusion of the matters to fear God, keep His commandments, because this is the whole duty of man, and God will bring every act into judgment, even the secret things, whether they be good or evil. If he would have said that in verse 3 or verse 4, or even at the end of chapter 1 you would have just dismissed that. There would have still been questions swirling around in your head. Well, maybe there's meaning here. Or or maybe there's meaning there. We would think we were too smart for something that simple. Maybe I need to live a little first. Maybe I need to, to sow my wild oats or what other nonsense that you hear from the world. You would have thought, I mean, I hear you, Solomon. Vanity and frustration and that money isn't the ultimate answer, but, but maybe a little would help. Uh, maybe it didn't work out that way for you, but maybe it, it, it will for me. I, and I think I need to try a few of these roads untraveled that, that look quite appealing from a distance. And so Solomon knows your heart, and so does God. So he takes us on this journey to prove that you're wrong. Solomon's done you an immense favor. He's wiser than you. He has more success than you, more authority than you. He had more money than you. He was the wisest man, the richest man. And he's shown you definitively that what awaits down every path apart from God is futile. It's futility and frustration. And he had to prove that from every angle. Without Christ, he had to turn over every rock. We had to feel all of that futility. And so... Because he's done that for us, now we're ready for the solution. You remember he revealed his goal in verses 11 and 12. His two goals. It was to loosen your grip on a sin-cursed world by opening your eyes to what life is really like. That was the sharp stick or the goad. And then the second goal was to teach you how to live wisely in this world and to long for the next. That's the well-driven nail. And having accomplished both of those things, Solomon now provides us four conclusions about life under the sun. There are four conclusions here about life under the sun. And it's a summary. The four conclusions explain why if you live without God, nothing matters. It's empty. It's vain without God. But when you live for God, everything matters. There are only two verses, and they begin with two declarations or two commands, and they end with two motives to follow those commands. It's very straightforward. Two commands and two two motives to follow those commands. And he starts with command one. Your chief end is to worship God. 
fear God. We'll call it worship because that's what it means. The second command is your chief aim is to follow His ways. It's also in verse 13. And then He gives the two motives. Because this is the whole purpose of of mankind. And because God will judge all men. Verses 14. Or verse 14, I should say. Four conclusions about life under the sun. Let's look at the... The, the first one here, your chief end is to worship God. What is the conclusion of 12 chapters of futility and frustration? Solomon says worship God. Look at verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God, or we're calling it worship God, because I think that, that communicates exactly what Solomon is, is saying here. Solomon gives us the verdict of the, of the whole book. Walt Kaiser calls it the grand conclusion or the end of all things. And in the Hebrew, there, there's only two words. There, there's no verb. It just says the end of the matter. All has been heard. And, and with that, that idea, there's a declaration coming. After 12 chapters, Solomon can't wait to share the answer. He even leaves the verb out here. He's been asking questions the entire book. What, what is the profit of living? What is the purpose of existence? What does man get for all of his work? And now he, he answers all of those questions. Our chief end is to worship the one true and living God. Besides him, there, there is no other. What do you get for life under the sun? You get God. That, that, that's, that's what you get. And he's been showing us that there's nothing else worthy of true worship. And now he tells us who is worthy of true worship. It's our creator. Michael Ethan said the body of the book has, has simply placed an alternative views of life against each other. And now the life of faith has been commended. And Solomon points out that, that life has, has implications. And the first one is... To worship God. He's told us why that we should fear God and worship Him. Give Him the attention that He rightly deserves over and over in the book. Fear God because He's sovereign in chapter 3. Fear God because He demands holy worship in chapter 5. Fear God in adversity as well as prosperity in chapter 7. He said fear God and it will go well with you in chapter 8. Fear God and obey Him because you'll stand before Him in judgment one day in, in chapter 12 verse 14. Now he bluntly says God alone is worthy of reverence or or, or worship. And that's exactly how Jesus summarizes his mission, why he came. Do you remember the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right after that great passage about Nicodemus? Jesus is traveling, and he runs into a woman at the, at the well. She says that she can tell that, that he's a prophet because he knows all about our, our life. Haven't you felt that in Ecclesiastes? God knows about me as you read this book. She says, I I can tell you're a prophet because you you know a lot about my life, which is a mess, by the way. Her life's a mess. She's she's full of immorality. She's had five husbands, and she's living with a man now. And Jesus tells her that she has a worship problem. And he tells her that he's actually come to fix that. You remember what it says in John 4? Jesus says, but, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. 
God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. And when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus says, I speak to you from He. It's the issue of all mankind, the worship problem. We worship lesser things. We worship the wrong things. You sin, and I sin, because you believe the lie that it will bring you greater pleasure than God will. You run down these these rabbit holes in Ecclesiastes because you believe that what's at the end of that road will bring you greater pleasure than, than God will, and Solomon says that's not true. He's proven that in exquisite detail. Nothing in life satisfies. Not sex, not pleasure, not accomplishments, not nice things, not enjoyments. They're all vanity. They're empty without Christ. But God is worthy of worship. And you can't have Christ and all of those other things. You must choose. And so Solomon brings you to this point of choice. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll you'll choose one over the other, and you must choose. You will choose which one you, you will follow. Your problem is... Is, is not a, a disorder, it's rebellion, it's, it's unbelief. You, you fail to believe what God says about Himself whenever you sin. That there's nothing more satisfying than He is, that He's truly glorious and that He can satisfy your every, every longing. So you choose sin over Him whenever you, whenever you do. And until you, you reverse that order and you, you, you worship God, you, you choose Him, you'll be a miserable so, do you remember the example, the, the, probably the one that, that everyone remembers in the Old Testament about this choice? In 1 Kings 18, 21, when Elijah is in the final showdown with the God of Israel and the prophets of, of Baal, and, and Elijah calls on God's people to choose once and for all between the living God who delivered them and the false God who's captured their, their affections. And he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. And the people said nothing. It says, but the people said nothing. And that's the way that, that many people live their life. They know there's these two competing options out here, but they, but they say nothing. They, they want to ride the fence. And Solomon has drug us through the valleys of this book and the feelings that follow. So when you come to this decision, you will not be silent. You cannot be silent. God alone is the one who's worthy of of worship. One writer said, without Solomon's message, we would be no different than the Israelites. I mean, mean, think about it. Do you like being, being brought to a point of decision where you must choose and there's no turning back? Test yourself. Would you prefer to make an ironclad, no-turning-back choice or, 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 would, or one where you could back out if you, if you needed? The writer said, do you ever find that you're afraid to commit? Do you reply to party invitations with a maybe rather than a yes or a no? I mean, maybe until the day of? Do you like to keep your smartphone switched on at all times, even in meetings, so, so that you're not fully present at any given moment? You like to worship the God of open options. And God says there's only one that's worthy of worship, and that's Him. 
Solomon says that it's not an option. You either reverence and fear him or you disregard and, and, and ignore him. And you can't change the fact that there's a God any more than, than, than you can find happiness in a cursed world. What you can do is worship him. And Solomon has been showing us why that we should do that. So he says that our chief end, the end of the matter, the conclusion after all has been heard is, is to worship God. He's the only one worthy. He's the only one that can satisfy our, our souls. And if you worship him, then he says, you'll obey him. The second conclusion to all of life is our chief aim is to, is to follow his ways or to keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments or worship him and, and follow his ways. Look at if you would at verse 13 again. The conclusion, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Those are the two commands. He is the second direction. And it's part of, it, part of his conclusion. He says our aim is to, is to keep his, his commandments. It's the only place where the commandments of God are mentioned in, in the book. And whenever you hear the, the commandments of God, you might think of the ten commandments, but, but there's way more than that. Both of these two things together, worshiping God and following His ways, fearing God and keeping His commandments, paints a picture of covenantal living. This, you know the God of the universe, your creator, and you worship him, and because of that, you follow him. This is what the Israelites did. If you worship and revere God, then you follow what he says. It's a, it's a natural progression. We talked about that even last week, I think, in, in, in the book of Philippians. You can't have Jesus as your get-out-of-hell-free card and deny him as God. You can't have him as Savior and then reject him as Lord. And you can't say, I worship God and then not follow His ways, or, or say it positively. If you do worship God, then, then you will follow His ways. It's, it's a natural outflow. What naturally follows fear or worship is, is obedience. And the order of the commands are, are important. They're in the right place. He doesn't say, keep His commandments and fear God. He says, fear God, worship God. And keep his commandments. Fear is first and keep is second. Worship first, then obey. You can't back into it. Solomon says a knowledge of God leads to obedience, not the other way around. Our conduct comes from our worship. Our desire precedes our, our will. That's the reason God has to, to give you a new want to in, 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 in Christianity, he has to give you a new heart because your heart is corrupt. So you have a will, but you just do what you want to do. You do what you desire to do, and your desires are corrupt. So God gives you a new will, or a new desire, if you uh, meaning. And then from that comes your, your will. You now act. You now choose. But you choose with a different operating system. You do what you want to do. And you obey God out of genuine love for Him. And if you don't love Him, you, you don't obey Him. And if you do, you will. It's not simple. Not perfectly, but you'll desire to. While we may think of commandments like a system of rules to keep, the Old Testament thinks very differently. This is relationship language. It's why the, the Jews recite every day the, the Shema to, to remind them to live in light of this relationship. You know Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I com- I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. The same order. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. Fear Him. There's the worship. And you shall love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love means His commandments will be on your heart, Deuteronomy says. Fear God leads to keeping His commandments. And Deuteronomy goes on and says, so that it will be well for you. Blessing will come. And the New Testament echoes the same thing, doesn't it? The words of Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. Here's the fulfillment. See, saying the same thing. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. We'll have fellowship with Him. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, follow my ways, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. First John. By this we can be sure that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, if our lives line up with His, follow His ways. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. I mean, I could go on over and over and over. It's the exact same thing that Deuteronomy says, because it's the same message. You realize who God is, and then you submit to that one true and living God. You worship Him, and having worship Him, what worship is, is is you give Him your your heart, and then you follow Him. You desire to follow His ways. Genuine love proceeds and gives birth to obedience. It's not some wooden external thing. It's who you are. Do you remember when Jesus quotes uh, Isaiah 29 to show the Pharisees their, their real issues? You, you probably don't just by saying Isaiah 29. He says, the, uh, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, there's our word from Ecclesiastes, in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precept of men. He didn't say that because the Pharisees didn't know the details of the law, or they even failed to keep the details. They, they kept it very well. But notice what he contrasts. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precept of, of men. Honor and worship are parallel. Lips and heart are, are as well. They honor me with their lips, but they, but they fail to worship me from their heart, which, which is where worship comes from. And Solomon says to, to honor God with your heart, and, and if you follow His ways, then, then you won't just do that with your lips only. You'll do it with your whole life. Do you do that? Is the pattern of your life obedience to God from your heart? Or do you only say it with your lips? When faced with a choice between what you desire to do or choosing what is pleasing to God, which choice do you consistently make? 
Do you obey God? It's a great test. That's a greater test than what you say. The Bible says if we say we have fellowship with Him and still get drunk, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with Him but deceive others and commit immorality and dishonor our parents, then we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we live in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. The Bible tells us in many places, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Exactly what you sow in your life, you'll reap, whether it's good or bad. And we're getting there in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 6, don't don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. They won't. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for, uh, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 5, 6. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. James, uh, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good, good morals. If you do not do what he says, then, then you're not a worshiper. You're, you're a lip server. And if you think you're a worshiper, then you're deceived. And the Bible says, don't be deceived. The conclusion, all has been said. Worship God and keep his ways. Now he gives the first reason to do that. The third conclusion is this is the whole purpose of, of mankind. Look at how he ends verse 13. The conclusion, all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. Here's the reason, first reason. And he'll give the second one in verse 14. This applies to every person. He gives us the first motive uh, to obey what he's just said. And the command applies to every person. How about that for application? You don't have to guess. This applies to you. The whole duty of humanity is this. That's the idea. It simply means fearing God and obeying His commandments is the most important thing that a man or woman can do. Some of your translations may say duty, and that word is not in the Hebrew. It's there to try to help us explain what, what the idea here is. But, but the King James and the New King James that we read this morning nails it. I mean, duty is not here. The idea here is this is, this is all of a person. I think when we hear the word duty, we, we think of staying on post or paying your taxes. Like, like it's the duty of a citizen, it's like what we do. Hebrews says this is the whole of man. This is the reason that he exists. It's why that why you were created. What did Solomon just get done telling us before he brought us to this conclusion in chapter twelve? Chapter twelve, verse one. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come. Remember him in verse six, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Remember the one who made you, because you're coming to an end whenever you'll meet him. It's why you were made. He is your creator. He made you for this purpose. He made you for the purpose to worship him, and he made you for the purpose of following him. But because of sin and the fall, we don't do either one of those things. So Jesus has come to correct that. 
to bring true worshipers. And when He gives us a new heart, then, then we truly follow and we truly obey. You were created for that, and you only find that when you come to see God for who He is and you worship Him. Then you'll live your life desiring to please Him and following His ways because this is the whole of man. Solomon over and over has told us that that joy and meaning are found in God in eternity, and, and, and secondly, he's told us how to live wisely until we get to see Him. And you have to understand the first before you can understand the second. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, most people look through the wrong end of the binoculars whenever they're, whenever they're looking at life. You ever done that? You ever picked up a pair of binoculars? I know you're not dumb enough to look through the, the big ends, but, but have you ever done that just to, just to see what it looks like? Everything looks really small rather than, rather than magnified. And when you look for satisfaction in life, it seems far, far away, so far that you'll never reach it. But, but, it, but if you look at this life through the lens of Christ, then, then you'll realize meaning and, and purpose are, are in a person. They're not in a place. They're not in a thing. And this God is, is worthy of our worship and He's worthy of our obedience because that's what we're created for. And beyond that, you're going to meet Him one day. You're going to stand before Him and meet Him face to face one day. And this is the second reason that Solomon, Solomon gives here. The fourth conclusion to all of life is that you should fear God and keep His commandments because you were created for that and because judgment is, is coming. God will judge all mankind. Look at verse 14. The second reason. For God will bring every act to judgment, whether uh, everything which is hidden or secret, whether it is good or evil. The final reminder is a warning that every act, even the hidden things, will be brought to a verdict. Notice what he says here in verse 14. God will bring every act to judgment, even the secret things, not just what you see, the things that you do in the dark, the motive of your heart that, that nobody can see, every hidden thing. And the judgment will be, will be good and evil. It, 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 will, it, will, it will prove, it will test, it will correct what is evil and it will bring about what is good. The second reason that you should fear and obey God is because, because He's a perfect judge. He has the right to do that because He made you. And He'll judge you in a, in a perfect way. The idea is a complete and perfect judgment that sees all and knows all and has the ability to, to discern. You ever get frustrated with failure in the justice system? There will be no failure in this justice system. It's a perfect judge. And all things that you're laboring so diligently to cover, God without effort will expose for all to see, and He'll render a verdict, a judgment, and you'll be praised or condemned based on that, that judgment. 
D.R. Davis said, Life down here is only a prelude to a greater life in the hereafter. Phil Riken said, One day God will expose every secret sin and every unknown act of kindness, both evil and also good. In the answer to all of the frustrations and, and, and the sense of futility in life that we've been feeling through the entire book is found right here in verse 14. I mean, judgment here is not just a, a negative, but a positive. God will set everything right. And here's the moment where He'll straighten out what is crooked and, and what we could not re-straighten on, on earth. He rewards the good and He punishes the, the wicked. I mean, here's the answer to the dilemma of the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. Here's the answer to oppression and injustice. Here's the answer when, when death has, has no longer any power. Here's the moment when wicked politicians will no, no longer carry any sway, but they'll fall under the true judge and they'll give an account. You see, without God's bar, without judgment, life doesn't make any sense. Without a judge, without a judgment uh, of both the, those being righteous, life is unlivable, it's confusing, it's empty, it's without, it's without futility. And the next life is coming, and with it, a judgment. A reconciliation when all will be brought in line with God and with His, His commandments. It will cover everything, even what is hidden. It will include both right and wrong. What's the conclusion of all of Solomon's observations and exploration? It's, it's specifically spelled out here. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Why? Well, it's because that's why you were created and because He will bring everything to judgment. He'll make right what is wrong and God will put an end to the curse and that's the promise that Ecclesiastes makes. Everything between the introduction and the conclusion in Ecclesiastes is governed by these two magnetic poles. The world to come is where we find reality. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says life is not pointless because God will bring everything to, to judgment. God says what you experience now is not the way it's supposed to be, and He will ultimately judge the curse. He'll remove it, and He'll reward good. Isn't that how the Bible ends? Echoes Ecclesiastes? Revelation is not just a book about the apocalypse. It's, it describes this judgment when all will be made right. Revelation 20, at the end, the great white throne judgment. In verse 14, death and the grave will be thrown into the lake of fire. They represent the curse, and they're the great enemy of man, and they'll be judged. The curse will be over. Revelation 21 then gives a small glimpse of what the world will be like. God will, will, will be among His people. He'll wipe away every tear. There'll no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. And then Revelation 22, the end comes succinctly. Revelation 22, 3, and there will no longer be any curse. You came from the dust, you labor in the dust, 
You'll go back to the dust, but in the end, God will transform the dust into a glorious place where we'll live with Him forever. You see, if there is no God and therefore no judgment, then nothing matters. But if there is a God, and He's given good gifts, and He'll judge the world, then everything matters. This is not all there is. One day the dead will be raised and every person will stand before the Creator in judgment and He'll bring every last deed. He'll reconcile every last thought, every last word, whether it be good or or evil. There's more to life than this. And God has appointed a day in which He'll reconcile it all. Phil Riken said at the final judgment... It will matter how we used our time, whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or whether we worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested it in the eternal kingdom. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what what we saw with our eyes, what our hands touched or, or our mouths spoke. Whether we obeyed our father or mother will matter. So with a look that, that we, we gave them, and that little comment that, that we made as, as we were walking away. What we did for a two-year-old will matter in the, in the way we made time for her and got down on her level. What, what we said about someone else's performance will matter. The sarcastic remark or, or the, the word of genuine praise, the proud boast and the selfless sacrifice will, will matter. The household task and the homework assignment will matter. The the cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all matters. Because there's a God. And He will reward that which is evil, or reward that which is good, and He will judge that which is evil. This is not all there is. And Solomon says that you should live like there's something more coming. What's the conclusion? Fear God, worship Him, follow His ways, because that's why you were created, and because you'll stand before Him one day and give an account for everything. Why don't you bow your heads? As we come to the end of this book, it's been convicting. And it's been encouraging, and it's given us the true answers of life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're somewhere in chapter 1 through 12. You're, you're still wandering down one of those, those roads, and, and this morning God's brought you to what really matters. He lays before you a choice. There is a God, and you can't change that. And you were made by Him and for Him. What you have to choose is, will you worship that God and will you follow His ways? And the only way that you can do that is is to come through Christ. Jesus said that's why He came, to seek worshipers. And in order to do what God says, you have to desire what God desires, and you need a new heart to do that. The Bible says that you're a sinner. But if you'll come to Christ... If you'll submit to Him, then then He'll give you a new heart and He'll wash away all of your sins. 
He'll promise that whenever you stand before Him in, in judgment, Christ will be the one that's already been judged for you. And that's freely offered to you by grace alone, faith alone. And you just simply say, Lord Jesus, I know that I've lived my life in rebellion against you. And I don't want to do that any longer. I am I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. I, I, I change my mind. I change direction. I, I look to you. I humble myself before you. I bow the knee. And I believe all that you have said about what you have done, that you are God, that you are the Messiah, that you died for, for sinners like me. And I need you to wash away all of my sins. I believe that you were buried and that you rose from the dead and you did that to give me the promise of eternal life. I receive you not only as my Savior, but Lord, I bow before you. I want you, Lord. And the Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, God will not leave you without a promise. He'll save you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this great book. We thank you for the truth that's shared in it. And I pray even now for those who are in the a moment of decision that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Thank you for Jesus who never once wavered from His purpose. He kept your law perfectly. And he sought sinners like me. And thank you for the eternal life that's promised in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, as we normally say, don't forget, whenever you leave, um, the offering plates are there for our church family fellowship outside so we can clean in here. And if you're troubled about your soul, you have a question or concern, I will be up here. I'd love to talk to you. Father, we love you and we praise you and ask you to dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.